Um, and we're excited that he can spend some time with us sharing the words. So, uh, Joe, it's all you. John, sorry. Since my name's John Joseph, I go by John, I go by Joe, I go by JJ, so any of those will work for me. Uh, friends, it is a, a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, as Adam said, uh, I visited with you all before to preach, but it was back in uh, 2017, uh, right before we planted uh, Chevrolet Baptist Church. Uh, so now we're almost uh, four years on from that, three and a half years. So it's good to be back with you. Uh, my family wishes they were with you today, but uh, because of our building situation, we're, we don't have a building of our own. We're, we're meeting in another church's building. So our service is not until 2.30 p.m. this afternoon. So I'll be preaching there on the Lord's Supper later today. Uh, and my wife and, and kids uh, thought it best, given their ages, to, to just attend that service uh, I don't know that my kids would make it through two services, but uh, they send their greetings, and the saints at Chevrolet Baptist Church uh, send their greetings. Uh, we are thankful for you all, thankful, thankful for God's grace uh, through you, and for the good things that we hear about your congregation, and we pray for you often uh, in our pastoral prayers, so I am grateful to be here with you. Uh, but I'm also excited uh, to open up God's word with you and to hear him speak to us. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us briefly. And then we'll look together at Psalm 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we often forget how, how great a privilege it is that we get to hear you speak. You are a God who speaks. You spoke and brought all things into creation. And you, you've spoken to us in these last days through your Son. You gave the apostles and the disciples and the authors of scripture your spirit to speak through them your words that we would have a, a written account of all that King Jesus did on our behalf. We know that you speak in all of scripture and all of it testifies to his majesty. Thank you for this time together in your word. We pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Unwinnable wars. Unwinnable wars are a nightmare for the nations fighting them. They consume precious resources, right? Think of the, the trillions of dollars spent on wars and not only those types of resources, but the resources of lives lost in unwinnable wars. Unwinnable wars can erode the morale of a country and often be the event that triggers the downfall of an entire nation or people. And wars can really be unwinnable for different reasons, if you think about it. Perhaps the objective isn't clear. No clear objective. What are we fighting for? How can we even know if we've won this war? Maybe, and so the army fighting can't know whether it's won or lost. Or relatedly, maybe it's unwinnable because of the context in which it's being fought. Think of the war on terror, for example, right? A global war in which the people being fought against are everywhere and nowhere at once. The enemies are unknown, and so how can one know if one has ever won or lost the war? There are really numerous reasons that we could come up with that make wars unwinnable, but perhaps the most dramatic reason of all is when an army takes up its weapons against an opponent who simply cannot be beat. History is replete of examples, uh, with examples of wars like this, 
Wars in which the deck was so decisively stacked in favor of one side that one has to question why on earth the opposing army decided to fight in the first place. What do unwinnable wars have to do with us? I bring this up because the passage we're studying today is an account of an unwinnable war. It's an account of a war that started thousands of years ago, years ago and is still going on today. And what we might be fi- uh, surprised to find out after we read through Psalm 2 and unpack its meaning for us is that some of us might be involved in this war and not only involved in this war, but on the losing side. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 2. Uh, I'm not, I don't have a, a, a copy of the ESV with me that you're using. If somebody wants to shout out the page uh, that it's in, in your Bible on, in the Pew Bible, or I think you also have it in your bulletin there, the text of Psalm 2, so you can just turn there uh, uh, to look over the passage. As you're turning to Psalm 2 in your Bibles, I want to provide some background uh, to our passage this morning. The book of Psalms uh, contains 150 individual psalms that were written over the course of about 800 to 1,000 years. Uh, They deal very candidly with the experiences of life in a fallen world, and they really do explore the the full range of emotions that we experience in this life. Anger, frustration, sadness, joy, sorrow. The book of Psalms captures them all, but more than anything else, the psalms tell us about God's relationship with his people and what he's done and is doing to repair the relationship that we've foolishly broken by our decision to go to war against God. This is exactly what Psalm 2 is about. It's about an unwinnable war that mankind has chosen to wage against God. I'm going to read the passage for us, and then we're going to dive in. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 2 under three different headings. 
First, we're going to see that mankind is at war with God. Second, mankind cannot win its war with God. And third, mankind should accept God's peace treaty. So first, we'll see that mankind is at war with God. That's really the unavoidable message of verses 1 to 3. The first thing I want you to notice, though, is that there's no mention of who wrote this psalm. You, you notice as you, you read through the different psalms, uh, a lot of them have superscriptions about who the author was. You'll see of David, of Moses, of the sons of Korah, of Solomon. Psalm 2 doesn't have any such superscription telling us who the author is. But even though it isn't stated, we know from the New Testament that King David wrote Psalm 2. And as we'll see, that makes a lot of sense given the, given the content of the psalm itself. But I want you to look at verses 1 to 3 with me and see that mankind is at war with God. I want you to notice the declarations of war in verses 1 and 2. David says that the nations rage. They're restless with anger. The peoples plot, right? They're, they're secretly gathering together to make war plans. The kings of the earth set themselves, right? They, they, they rise up and prepare for battle. And the rulers take counsel together, right? We're, we're close to Washington, D.C. and the White House and the Pentagon and, and all these major centers of, of governmental action where, where big decisions are made on behalf of our country. Uh, what's going on here, what, what's being pictured here is the equivalent of an ancient Near Eastern situation room. But all the kings of the earth have come together. They're forming a united front. And they're, they're, they're plotting battle and taking counsel together to wage war against the Lord. Right? But it's not just the kings and rulers of the earth who have gathered together to strategize against God. I want you to notice the words he uses, the particular words. It's the nations as a whole, right? Geopolitical entities. But it's also the people's the individual members of those nations. It's also their kings and their rulers. David's looking out at a world, and what he sees is mankind at war with God. The nations, their kings, and all of the peoples, right? They have joined together to declare worldwide war on God and on God's anointed one. In the Old Testament, the God who created the universe chose the people of Israel out of all the nations on earth to have a unique relationship with them. He allowed them to know him, and he lived among them in a unique way in the temple. And he also gave them a king, and then eventually many kings after that king, right? And the king of Israel was called God's anointed one. He was God's unique representative on earth. The king of Israel was so closely identified with God that when nations made war against him as the king of Israel, they were seen as making war on God himself. But why would mankind wage an unwinnable war against God? I want you to look at the reason given in verse 3. Look down there with me. The nations, peoples, Kings and rulers say, let us burst their bonds apart, that is, God and his king, and, and cast away their cords from us. Notice the imagery 
he's using. And the way these words are, are fraught with meaning, they view God's rule over them as oppressive. God's rule over them is, is viewed as bonds or shackles and cords and ropes. They view God's rule over them as a form of imprisonment that they need to be freed from. They wage war against God because they want to be free to do what they want to do. They want to live their own lives, make their own decisions. They don't need any God telling them what they can and, and can't do. They can decide for themselves what's right and wrong. Now, I want to be clear here about what's going on in Psalm 2. I don't think that there is a single event that David has in mind here in which all the nations, peoples, and rulers got together and declared war on God. I think what David is doing is he's looking out at the world, and as he looks out at the world, he sees mankind's worldwide rejection of God's rule that is pictured in the nations that he's surrounded by, like Assyria and Babylon and Persia, with their false gods that they bow down to and their rejection of the true God's rule over them. Right, So he sees mankind's worldwide rejection of God's rule seen in the worship of false gods that existed everywhere in the world at this time and seen in the willingness of those nations around them to wage war against Israel. And it was also seen even among some of David's own people who plotted to take his life as the anointed one of God. He's looking at all of that and he's saying, this is what's going on in their hearts. They want to break free from God's rule. They can't stand the thought of God ruling over them and they want to be free from his authority in their lives. This is a vivid picture, right? This is a worldwide declaration of war on God. I wonder, for those of you who don't understand yourselves to be followers of Jesus, if you're here, I'm glad you're here. There's really no better, no better place that I uh, think you can be. But if you don't understand yourself to follow Jesus, I wonder, what do you think is wrong with the world? I assume when you look around at the world around you, you, you recognize that there's something wrong with the world and with us as a people. Surely you'd agree that there's something wrong with the world and with us. There seems to be something inherently broken about us and the world around us. In your opinion, what is it? What's the reason? What's the answer? You know, there are a lot of different reasons that have been given to try to understand what's, world with the wrong around, uh, what's wrong with the world around us. Uh, one one well-known answer would be things like poverty. If we could alleviate poverty, then we can fix the world. But I don't think poverty is what's wrong with the world, though, though poverty is something that we should fight to work on as a people and fight to address, but I don't think it can be that. Why? Because some of the wealthiest people in the world do some of the most terrible things. Is it lack of education? That's another reason that's given. I don't think that can be it either, because some of the most well-educated people in the world do the most terrible things, right? I wonder, how do you explain what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us? 
It seems to me that if you're going to answer that question, you need to provide an answer that accounts for the fact that all people in all places at all times have experienced the same brokenness, regardless of their culture, regardless of their class, regardless of their status, regardless of their upbringing. It would need to be a comprehensive reason, a reason that transcends culture, time, and space. Because no matter where you go on earth, no matter where you go on earth, you find humans experiencing the same things. Anger and adultery, lying and lust, bitterness and rage, jealousy, and the numerous other inherently and obviously evil things that occur in our hearts and in our world. Where does that come from? What's your answer? Well, the answer that the Bible gives and the answer that I found the most convincing and comprehensive among all the religions and the answers given by all the religions of the world is this right here in Psalm 2. What's wrong with the world is that we are at war with God. We think we know best how to rule ourselves, and we view God's rule over us as oppressive and something that needs to be broken free from. We've rejected God's good rule and chosen to be our own kings and our own queens, and we have made a terrible mess of things, right? This is what the Bible calls sin. It's just looking at God and saying, no, that's sin, right? That's the simplest definition I can give. That's what you want me to do? No, I know best. That is sin, right? Sin, simply put, is the rejection of God's rule. It's a form of cosmic rebellion, right? And it's a rebellion that all of us have participated in. So if you're here right now and you are a Christian, praise God for that. If you're, if you're listening to me, read Psalm 2 and, and describe how the nations are at war with God and they want to break free from his shackles and you're like, yeah, John, get after him. Lots of people in the world are doing that. No, I'm talking to you and me. We all were at war with God. And we'll get to the, the riches of God's kindness and grace to us, but it's, it's right for us to remember that Psalm 2, apart from God's grace, is describing us, Right? That may be hard for some of us to believe, but I think the reason for that is because we innately seek to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to others, right? We say, oh, oh, I I know I've done some bad things, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy, right, or or that girl. And what happens is we start to think God will treat us by the same standard. You, You know what, John? What you did was wrong, but at least you aren't as bad as Adam. Like, that guy's terrible, right? Like, like, we start to think that God treats us and judges us in the same way. But friends, God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't look and say, oh, they all got 80 to 85. So 80 to 85 is the new A. No, God's standard is perfect righteousness. And all of us have fallen short of it because we've all waged war against God. And God will judge all of us individually in relation to that perfect standard. And since none of us have lived a perfectly righteous and holy life, because all of us have lifted up our voices with these people, we've said with one one voice, let us tear his shackles off of us, right? And what's terribly sad about this war that we've waged is just how absurd it is, right? Not only can God not be defeated, as we'll see, But it's absurd because God is so good. 
There's no reason for us to rebel against him. But notice what sin does to the human mind and human heart. It distorts our view of God. God's ways bring freedom, but we think they imprison us. God's laws are good for us, but we think we need to escape them. We view God as an evil ogre whose sole desire is to to rob us of joy, when in reality, he's created us for relationship with him. And in relationship with him is where true freedom, joy, and peace are found. Now, for the kids here, uh, a book that I have found as I read it with my kids that I think captures God's goodness really well that in a way that you might understand is a book called uh, the, the, or the Adam Raccoon books. Kids, have any of y'all read Adam Raccoon? Anyone familiar with Adam Raccoon? Well, even if you haven't read it, I can describe it pretty simply to you, right? Adam is a raccoon who lives in Master's Wood Master's Wood is a glorious place to live with everything that Adam could ever want. And Master's Wood is ruled by a lion named King Aaron. And King Aaron is very good. He's strong, he's loving, he's kind, and he's wise. And because he's a good king, he gives Adam Raccoon good instructions on how he should live. He knows what's best for Adam after all. But does Adam listen to King Aaron, kids? Do you think he listens to King Aaron? You can shout out the answer. Do you think he listens to King Aaron? No, right? No, he doesn't. Adam always thinks he knows what's best, and he disobeys King Aaron, and he gets into a lot of trouble. He learns time and time again that King Aaron's rules aren't there to restrict him, but to bring him freedom from the pain that disobedience brings. Friends, kids, King Aaron teaches us about God, right? King Aaron is like God, and we're like Adam Raccoon. His rules aren't chains to restrict us, but the path to true freedom and joy. It's not God who puts us in chains. It's it's us. We willingly take the chains of slavery to sin upon ourselves when we choose to turn away from God's ways and live as our own kings. Sin promises freedom, but only brings slavery. Sin promises joy, but eventually always brings pain. And when we choose to sin, we're joining the chorus of Psalm 2 and choosing to wage war against God. Mankind is at war with God. What we find next is that mankind cannot win its war with God, which brings us to our second point. Mankind cannot win its war with God. I want you to look at verses 4 to 9. Though the entire world has declared war on God, that's, that's a pretty uh, intense army to face, right? If I faced uh, all the nations arrayed against me, I would be shaking with fear because how am I going to fight against the entire world? But, but does all of the kings joining together and all of the nations and all of its people, does it cause God to fear and tremble? Well, it doesn't seem to have had the effect that they thought it would. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I don't think there's an image in the Bible that better draws out the absurdity of rebelling against God than this one. God is so far from being troubled by this war that he doesn't even bother standing up. Look at what David says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He he remains 
seated. Not even bothered in the least bit by the entire world rebelling against him. And he laughs. Nothing underscores the impossibility of man winning this war more than the fact that God sits and laughs. But we also see that he moves from laughter to action, right? He responds in verse 6, if you look there, by setting his chosen king on Mount Zion. This king would be God's instrument to respond to mankind's declaration of war. He's going to lead God's army into battle against them. Then in verses 7 and 9, look there with me, that king speaks. He describes when God called him his son. And then he basically says that this war will be no contest. Notice especially verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is an unwinnable war. A, a lopsided victory is on the way through God's chosen king. There will be no stopping his chosen king when he comes to confront mankind for his rebellion. Mankind cannot win this war with God. But we have to ask the question, who is this king? I think the obvious answer is that it's King David. Right? We've already seen that David wrote this psalm, and we have further proof of that in the psalm itself. In 2 Samuel 5, it was David who took hold of Mount Zion as king of Israel. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David, promising to establish for him an everlasting throne. And in that covenant, God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, echoing the very words of Verse 7, God's anointed king is King David. But we also see that this psalm isn't ultimately describing David, is it? David never made the entire earth his inheritance, as verse 8 says, would happen. And he never accomplished total victory over the nations, as verse 9 predicted. Nor did any of the kings that followed David in David's footsteps as king of Israel. King after king came and went in Israel, and none was able to accomplish what was promised in Psalm 2. Which kind of makes you wonder, why on earth are we here in Franconia, Virginia, in the year 2021, studying a piece of literature that's, I don't know, 3,000 years old? And it didn't come true. Seems like a supreme waste of time, right? Like there, there's something better we could be doing with our time uh, than studying an ancient piece of literature that didn't come true. Well, I guess it would be a supreme waste of time if this psalm didn't ultimately come true. But the fact is, it did eventually come true. And we also find out that more things predicted by this psalm are yet to come. You see, when God promised an eternal throne to David, he wasn't promising that David himself, the man, would reign forever, but that one of his descendants would come from the lineage of David, and, and that particular descendant would reign forever. And that man has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. You find at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus' lineage is traced to none other than David, he's the son of David. And in two separate occasions uh, in Mark's gospel, we see that a voice speaks from heaven about Jesus and says what? This is my beloved son, son of David, 
son of God, the anointed king predicted in Psalm 2. But you might wonder, wait a second. We're talking about Jesus here. Kind and compassionate, gentle and lowly, loving Jesus. If, if Jesus is this anointed king, what's up with all the wrath and fury, the rod shattering vessels? That, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. If you're wondering that, I, I, I can relate to you. I, I can understand that. This is where I just want to point out how interesting Psalm 2 is. It's very interesting. The way that I would put it is Psalm 2 is a letter written in the past about a people living in the present meant to prepare them for the future. Right? It's a letter written in the past about a people living in the present meant to prepare them for the future. It's a letter written in the past. It was written like 3,000 years ago. But it's about a people in the present. When the authors of the New Testament picked up Psalm 2, they didn't say, oh, this only took place back when David wrote it. They applied it to their immediate context. They understood Psalm 2 to be fulfilled when the religious authorities of Israel and the Roman government conspired to put Jesus to death. They gathered together and took counsel against the Lord and against his anointed and then crucified him on the cross. Psalm 2 was fulfilled then and it's fulfilled now. Anytime anyone openly in their life or internally in their heart rejects Jesus as Lord. And for those of us who are living in the present, we need to recognize that three days after Jesus was killed, he rose from the dead. His resurrection was proof that he is definitively the son of God. Paul says in Romans 1 that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the Almighty as king, of, and at the right hand of God the Father as king, where he presently reigns as a king right now over all creation. But I also said that Psalm 2 was meant to prepare us for the future, right? Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised that he would return again to rescue his people and bring judgment on all who have declared war on God. Verses 8 and 9 tell us what that future day will be like. And we know that this is what Psalm 2 is predicting because at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we find a prediction of Jesus' second coming. A prediction that, that's strikingly similar to Psalm 2. This is how the book of Revelation says that day will go down. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, King Jesus carries the rod of iron predicted in Psalm 2. Words really fail to capture the sheer terror of this future appearing of Jesus that we have to reckon with. This is a picture of an unwinnable war. And frankly, the imagery is hard even to grasp. I read a book not too long ago about a man named Tim Samaras. Uh, Samaras was a legendary storm chaser. I actually got the recommendation from Nick Roark. The guy reads tons of books, so I just read his book list at the end of the year and pick some books out. And Samaras was a legendary storm chaser who, who specialized in chasing tornadoes. And at the beginning of this book, there's an account of a tornado that hit Gerald, Texas, that I think gives us a hint of what that day will be like when Jesus returns. It says, the fire department siren sounded at 3.30 p.m., a shrill, oscillating note, like an air raid alarm. The siren was only ever used to call volunteers to the station, but anyone who had been paying attention that afternoon knew this was different. The TV meteorologists were already tracking the tornado four miles to the north of Gerald. It writhed like a snake at first, but for a time it seemed to track neither north nor south, but to trace a languid orbit in place. Then came the shift. The graceful ribbon was suddenly gone, replaced by this other thing, a gray miasma, not so much a tornado as a wall of smoke leaching up out of the earth. When it finally appeared in Gerald, it was a sight that people would resummon in their dreams for years to come, bristling with debris and blackened with rich soil scoured from the fields. It looked ancient and immutable. Its wings spread wide. What it looked like was the end of the world. You can imagine being in Gerald, Texas that day, looking at that wall of smoke approaching you and knowing that there's no escape. Why was there no escape? Because in the wake of the storm, it became clear that the wall of the tornado was measured as wide as th 13 football stadiums laid end to end. And Gerald was about a football stadium long. I recount that story because of the vivid way in which it provides us a faint glimpse into what Jesus' return might be like. You may regard Jesus' return in the same way that the people of Gerald regarded that tornado when it appeared at first. Like this thing just hovering off in the distance, not going north or south, nothing to worry about here. But it may be off in the distance now, Jesus' return. But when it appears, it will come suddenly. Psalm 2 tells us that his wrath is quickly kindled. It'll, it, it will appear suddenly. And it will come like a wall of smoke, bristling with debris, ancient and immutable. Standing before Jesus on that day as his enemy will prove as wise as standing in the path of that tornado and expecting to survive. Friend, if you're here and you don't follow Jesus... 
beg of you to, to take seriously what Psalm 2 tells us about Jesus' second coming. Mankind cannot win this war with God. Which brings us to our third and final point. Mankind should accept the terms of God's peace treaty. After describing the future and certain victory of God's chosen king over the nations, we're brought back into the present in verses 10 to 12, where we see that God has offered a peace treaty to those who have waged war against him. We see in those verses he gives five commands. If you want to have peace with God now and in the future, here's what you need to do. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. How might I translate that up for us today? Repent. Turn from sin. Turn from ruling your own life and recognize it and acknowledge that God is king and a good king and serve him with your whole life. Turn from rejecting God's rule. Not just repent, but look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Repent and serve him in recognition of his power. But not just repent and serve. Look at verse 12. Kiss the son. Turn from sin. Serve him and display your love for him. Repent, serve, love. Those are the terms of God's peace treaty. And any and all who agree to them will be shown grace and peace from God the Father. Both now and on that future day. I suspect that some of you might think Psalm 2 portrays God as a, a bit of a megalomaniac, obsessed with, with power, bent on destroying those who reject his rule. Sounds more like the kings of this earth, doesn't it? Well, I can certainly see how someone might arrive at that conclusion, but I do think if we, if we pay more careful attention to Psalm 2, we'll see a very different picture of God arise. First, I simply want to make the observation that it is remarkable that God extends a peace treaty to a people who've completely rejected him. I mean, if God was just, we would think, he should punish us right away for our sins. But God is gracious and long-suffering. He forbears with us. God's patience and kindness are meant to lead us to repentance. We need to reckon with the fact that, that God actually offers a peace treaty to mankind. And that is a sign of his love for us. God had done nothing to deserve our disloyalty, our treason, our sedition. And yet we rage against him. We, we plot and conspire. We prepare for battle against a perfectly holy and loving God. And he is so long-suffering and patient that he extends a peace treaty to us. So if we're going to deal honestly with Psalm 2, we need to take, how ser take seriously how peace-loving this God is. But it goes deeper than that. We'll even see that his love for rebels is far more radical than we could ever imagine. Look again at verse 7 with me. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now we've seen in the Gospels that Jesus is called the Son of God by the voice from heaven and he claims to be the son of God at his own trial before his resurrection from the dead. But on three separate occasions in the New Testament, this verse from Psalm 2 is cited in reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved definitively that he was God's son. Today, the day of resurrection, proof, you are my son. You've always been my son 
But this is the validating proof. Jesus is the Son of God. Why do I bring that up? Well, before Jesus could be resurrected, he would have to die. Now look at verse 6 of Psalm 2, which precedes verse 7. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This seemingly describes the coronation ceremony of the king, but what I want you to notice is that word set. I have set my king on Zion. The Hebrew word used there means poured out or poured out as a sacrifice. So we'd be justified in reading it. I have poured out as a sacrifice my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this is where you see the indescribable love of God for rebels like you and me. Because Psalm 2, verse 6, foreshadows the day when Jesus Christ, God's beloved son, the one who never sought to break free from God's rule but walked in all of God's ways perfectly, was nailed to a cross to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins. On that hill outside of Jerusalem, Jesus was enthroned on a cross of wood. You recall the sign, don't you, that hung above his head on that day? This is Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. Jesus' coronation ceremony began on the cross at Calvary. The sign wasn't ironic, friends. Jesus' death doesn't disprove his claim to be the king of the Jews. His death proves what type of king he is. He's the type of king that leaves the riches of heaven to come in search of rebels like us. He's the type of king who patiently teaches us how to turn from our rebellion against God and to trust in him and to experience the blessedness that God has for us. And he's the type of king who, rather than allow his children to face the judgment that we deserve, would willingly take our punishment himself. Hallelujah, what a savior and king. The rod of iron that we deserve fell upon Christ on the cross so that you and I, rebels against God, could be brought into his kingdom, given new hearts, and would be shown by his spirit the blessedness, joy, and freedom that comes not in rebelling against God, but in walking in his ways. Because his paths are righteousness and good and right and true. Ah, to the kids... And to the youth here, I want you to know that every day, every day of your life, you're going to be faced with a decision to serve, to serve someone. You can either serve yourself or you can serve God, right? This world is going to tell you that true freedom comes through serving yourself. Be yourself. Express yourself. Do what you want. Nobody else can tell you what to do, right? Throw off the shackles and be free. I can tell you as someone who lived that way for a long time, who didn't become a Christian until he was 30, it doesn't bring freedom. The world's ways don't bring freedom. Serving yourself will actually put you into chains. Kids, if you want to be truly free, serve King Jesus. He created you. And he knows how you were made to live. 
I also want everyone who follows Jesus to see how Psalm 2 changes our experience of this world. Right? The raging of the nations, the peoples and kings against God is still happening today. And it can cause a lot of stress to see the devastating ways that our world is at war with God and even greater stress to experience that opposition personally. But it's here that we should have our outlook on the world shaped by God's take on the situation. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Christians of all people should be the steadiest in the midst of the craziness that's going on in our world. Knowing that God is sovereign, he is good, He's far wiser than we are, and he's bringing all things according to their pre-intended end. God is not troubled by this world's opposition to him, and neither do we need to be. The psalm has served as a very great encouragement to God's people facing persecution throughout the ages precisely because of the certainty with which it declares victory, a victory that ripples throughout the pages of Scripture and comes to a head in the book of Revelation. How should this image of God as undisturbed by the opposition of this world change how you see current events and even the experiences in your own life? Man may be at war with God, but it's an unwinnable war. And those who've accepted the terms of his peace treaty can now be assured that God will relent. Not only will he relent, but he is now a refuge for you both now and forevermore. God offers a peace treaty to all today, to all who will turn from sin and put their trust in his anointed king, Jesus Christ. I wonder if you'll accept the terms of God's peace treaty today. Heavenly Father, we come to you as your people and we worship you through our great King Jesus by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the same mind, to share your view on the world that you have as you you sit in the heavens, undisturbed by the opposition against you. That, That opposition is real, it's fierce, and it can be hard in this life. Lord, protect your people. Help us to take refuge in you. We pray also that you would just help us to remember that we, we were at war with you, dead in trespasses and sins. And the only reason that we call you our Father and Jesus our King is because of your grace and mercy to us to give us new hearts and new minds. Thank you for your mercy towards us. We pray that you would show that same mercy to all who are here today. And that as we share the good news of what you've done through your King Jesus Christ, that you would be pleased to bring others to faith in Christ. Lord, we pray that your name would be holy and hallowed and lifted up in all the earth today. And that you'd be pleased to protect your people and be a refuge to us today and in the week to come. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.